Welcome to today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Welcome to today's workplace. Uh, Some employers are very familiar with OSHA and well-versed in compliance with OSHA, especially if you're in manufacturing or construction um, industries where historically there are significant issues around employee safety. But for many employers with white collar employees, OSHA has been an afterthought. Now in the era of COVID-19, this agency has increased significance and um, you know, has given us some information that is not typically on the forefront of our thinking and it has taken on tremendous importance. You know, we are very fortunate today to have an expert in OSHA, Courtney Malvo. Uh, Courtney is a principal in the Richmond, Virginia office of Jackson Lewis, and he co-heads the firm's workplace safety and health practice group and the firm's construction industry group. His practice focuses on representing employers who have been cited by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and other regulatory agencies, oftentimes following catastrophic um, incidents. So welcome to today's workplace. We're very happy to have you, um, to have you, Courtney. Thanks, Barbara. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great. So for our listeners who are not very familiar with OSHA, let's start by having you explain what this agency is and what their purpose is. Sure. So in 1971, Congress passed the uh, OSHA Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And so uh, I think I was, we were just talking about Schoolhouse Rock. I think I was uh, watching Schoolhouse Rock more frequently at that time when this act was passed. Uh, Maybe I was watching Sesame Street. I don't know. But uh, uh, I'm just a little bit older than the act itself. So at the time, it was, uh, as we know, the Vietnam War was occurring. And actually, there were more fatalities happening domestically in the workplace and there were even overseas and that was um there was a patchwork of state laws that were addressing workplace safety and some were stronger than others and some had enforcement regimes that were stronger than others and so congress decided that uh, it needed to have some kind of minimal standards that would address workplace safety and health and so that's that's the genesis of osha um, it's interesting that and uh, that OSHA uh, the the Congress set it up so that you had a dual regime of uh, enforcement, and so that makes things a little bit more complicated. But um, you had the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that was um, that was uh, enacted, but also uh, Congress said that if um, states still wanted to have some leeway in operating their own safety and health regime, they could continue to do so. And so um, there's a granting program under OSHA uh, for states to establish what are called state plans. And so roughly half the states have taken OSHA up on it and they provide matching funds uh, at varying levels and then they operate their own OSHA program. And so uh, you mentioned I'm in Richmond, Virginia and Virginia is one of the states that has its own state plan and so we have VOSH, or Virginia Occupational Safety and Health. And there, uh, there are 25 other states that do the same. Uh, and sometimes they cover private employers, sometimes public, sometimes both, um, usually both. And the only requirement for those states is that they have a program that's at least as effective as federal OSHAs. Mm-hmm. And then if they do that, then they can also have their own state-specific requirements as well. So uh, as you know, and... <laughs> In the law, it depends on who's in, who has jurisdiction and, and who doesn't. That has a whole lot to do with how the law is implemented. So, so do those states, um, those state OSHA organizations, do they have a separate and apart enforcing body from the federal 
OSHA and could a, an employer in these states be subject to both? Uh, generally, no, you're subjected to one or the other. And so OSHA kept jurisdiction over federal workplaces. So for example, federal enclaves or military bases or the United States Postal Service. And usually the employers, even the contractors who come onto these work sites, um, they all fall under federal OSHA, what's called federal OSHA jurisdiction, even in a state plan state. So if there's work being done, or, or uh, interestingly, um, uh, the cabins of uh, airplanes, <laughs> just the cabin. <laughs> just the cabin. Just the cabin. Um, so, uh, so those, so for example, if you had, um, an employer sending, uh, at, working as contractors at a military base in Norfolk, then, um, they would fall, then federal OSHA has an office in that area and then they send their inspectors and they enforce federal OSHA law. But for nearly all other private employers, and certainly for all state and local employers in the state plan states um, like mine, then they fall under VOSH jurisdiction. And so it could be Cal OSH for California or Oregon, you, you, you name it, whatever state they're in, they have their own regime. So, and uh, just to give you an idea of what it's like, so OSHA has its own standards and I actually have, I have these with me all the time. This is the general industry standard for OSHA and there are other books for, for construction. Is that your Bible? Is that your Bible, Courtney? Uh, I don't sleep with this next to me, but I certainly have it by my side all day. And I'm, you know, I, 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 when my when my assistant brings in the new regulations, I, I literally get air. I jump out of excitement. It's it's OSHA is a long dark hole, and you don't want to even take one step going down there. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's but so you have this, these standards now. In the states like mine, with the state plans they have their own. And I said they have to have a plan that's at least as effective as federal OSHA. And there's okay. a huge, huge debate over what effective means. And if you really, really want to geek out like me, I actually wrote a law review article on the subject that I think, I don't think my own mother read it. <laughs> but, um, but so, but there are state specific standards. And if this you get books like these from federal, then the states have, can add their own standards. And this is my state standard book uh, for okay. Virginia. It's a lot thinner and not as heavy. Mm -hmm. You can't, and, but, but that's, that gives you some idea that generally 95 to 99% of the rules still apply in the states that apply, apply to federal OSHA. Mm -hmm. um, the, but I will tell you, California is a very different animal. It has, it, it really, and like in a lot of other areas, California, I was going to say that's no surprise, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I I'm staying on the East Coast. Um, when someone in, when you when you need someone on the left coast, I, I know people to call, but I, mm -hmm. I'm trying not to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but yeah, it it can get kind of thick. Courtney, what has been um, your experience over the years, either with OSHA or state-related agencies? I I gave a very um, brief bio at the beginning, but were you actually working for one of the OSHAs or OSHA-related type entities? Guilty as charged. So uh, until about seven or eight years ago, time's kind of flying, um, I, I served as uh, our state labor commissioner. And so um, in the state plan states, the state labor commissioner or the labor secretary oftentimes will oversee their OSHA program in their state. And so I had enforcement authority over OSHA as well as other uh, labor and employment laws in Virginia. And so, but the, the OSHA component, our VOSH component in Virginia was the largest component of, of uh, the agency uh, by far. That's great. So um, talk to us about, you know, one of the things I mentioned is that OSHA has suddenly come to the forefront for most employers now in the age of the pandemic. And can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that evolution, the evolution of OSHA in addressing uh, the pandemic and, and, you know, what happened at first, how they responded and now how they're engaged with employers? Sure. And I, I think a lot of the folks who will be listening will either be employers, uh, especially in the employment or labor context, uh, 
-hmm. and also um, people who are in human resources or in managerial positions. And you, as, as many of you know, people in those fields, they either, when COVID hit, they either got super busy or super slow. And I got to tell you, um, people didn't even know who we were. <laughs> and and my this phone is ringing so fast, uh, and the emails come in faster than I can reply. And um, right now, I've got stacks of files over here of folks who need advice in dealing with COVID in the workplace. So um, for whatever reason, I don't know if OSHA lawyers became cool, but they are certainly in high demand. Um, so it, it's added huge layers of complexity to OSHA practice, um, to the questions that come up and uh, the anxiety of COVID in the workplace. And so um, we're grappling with, with the guidance that's coming out from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is really driving the bus for everything else. And so when CDC came out with guidance that OSHA would follow, um, so OSHA has pretty much been taking the CDC's lead in its guidance documents. Now, I remember, and I sit on a board, it's called the our Safety and Health Codes Board. And so I mentioned that we enact the standards in our state, the OSHA regulations in my state, I'm actually on the, I'm a, a voluntary member of that board that enacts those standards. So um, it, it's a neat opportunity to kind of help shape policy in addition to practicing law. And I remember sitting there next to one of the last meetings I went to before COVID was in full force. I was sitting next to a buddy of mine and he said, hey, um, what are we going to do about reporting or recording OSHA or COVID cases to OSHA? And I said, recording? Who's thinking about recording? We need to have our eye on the ball. This is about life and death. And this is a this is at the time it wasn't yet a pandemic, but it was looking like mm -hmm. it was going to become one. And I said, we've got to be on top of our our safety and health game here. We can't worry about the paperwork so much. Well, it turns out that it turn, it is still, um, as of the recording of this podcast in August, a huge, confusing, and burning issue mm -hmm. about whether and how and when to record and report COVID cases in our record keeping and, record, and reporting them to OSHA. And so, um, I will tell you, in a, a very one one unfortunate byproduct is that um, I, I know I'm, I'm in a I've been in an enforcement role and I'm now in a rulemaking role. I'm also in a uh, advising council role. Um, too often we take our eye off the ball on what is most important, and the most important thing about this is human life and human safety. And that's what we hold in our hands as practitioners, as managers. And if we focus too much on these skirmishes over the rules, oftentimes we lose sight of what's most important. And so I, I, while I'm helping employers to manage their response and compliance with the quickly changing rules, and the quickly changing science, um, I'm continually encouraging them, look, take a breath, do your wusas, do your ohms, do whatever you gotta do <laughs> to settle down and focus on what's most important because it's all about trying to keep people healthy and safe while mm -hmm. keeping life going. And so um, that's, that, that, that's been what, I, I, I maybe maybe unless the lawyer side of me more the human side of me says mm -hmm. yes we've got to comply with the rules we have to understand them um, and we don't want to land in legal trouble but also you know most employers well the employers I work with are very concerned about their employees safety and yeah. so maintaining that focus for me has been one of the biggest challenges mm. so so more like a lead with humanity focus absolutely Absolutely. You can, <laughs> it, maybe it's unheard of. <laughs> Sometimes humanity gets lost in the practice of law. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, maintaining the focus on what's most important. Uh, I try, I'm very determined to keep that in front of us at all times. 
You know, early on in the pandemic, Courtney, there were reports of um, unsafe workplaces um, all, you know, everywhere. Um, you know, the meatpacking industry, I know there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of concern about workers who were essential workers and continuing to work. And so what um, steps did OSHA take to address these concerns? So you're right. And so there are certain workplaces that they got hit hard. And sometimes it's, we, we get to be behind the closed doors and we get to see these situations for what they are. Um, and we get, so the, sometimes the press is not entirely accurate or maybe kind of focuses on certain stories, but not others. Um, and even policymakers have a tendency to focus on some and not others and not always have their eye on the ball and where the real problems are. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some serious problems. There certainly have been. Um, and so, yes, you're right. In meat packing, in um, seafood, in poultry um, processing, those types of facilities had real problems because you had people who had to work in close proximity. And um, so, and that, of course, is um, uh, a risk factor, a big one. And um, I, I think a lot of, I actually got to work closely with um, a member of the board who's exactly in that industry. And I work with employers, one of whom had a number of COVID cases uh, pop up and they really spread quickly, especially among the immigrant pop, the H2B workers who work there. And so, um, but you find that they're not, I think if, if you just listen to the press reports, you'd think, oh, they don't care. The human life is expendable. I, I don't see that as the ethos. I think they're like the rest of us where they got caught with a difficult situation and um, it was not anticipated. It's the novel coronavirus. By definition, it was new. It was unforeseen. And so, and I got to tell you from those stories, and sometimes, unfortunately, they're, they're, they range from sad to tragic, that you really have some victories. And you have folks who said, you know what, this happened. We're going to address this, and we're going to do things the right way. And uh, I, the good part, one of the things I love most about my work is that I can be part of those success stories when they start out in a bad place, Mm -hmm. But then they adopt new business practices and uh, new safety practices and embrace that and run with it. And then you see, and they can really turn these situations around. Many of them have. And so um, my board, uh, the Safety and Health Codes Board, was considering um, there were advocates who were pushing for a specific standard to go after exactly these industries, the seafood, meat, poultry um, processing. And so it came back to the governor, the administration, and then the governor's or, uh, directive was, um, no, I'd like to have a standard that addresses all industries. And I think, um, and so we came back and we came up with a standard that wasn't as punitive and something that um, could have broader application and broader impact and um, to that extent, I thought that was uh, a good decision. And also it embraced the reality that many of the players in those industries, at least in Virginia, but elsewhere too, were doing the right thing and moving things in the right direction. And we went from um, ideas that were really going to crack down to the point of breaking backs to one that in that embraced the good practices they're engaging in and um, and encouraging that along. And I thought that was a good step. Yeah. Could you be a little bit more specific then about when you talk about a standard, what generally is in, in, in that standard or what did you, um, what did your board create? in terms of, um, you know, I mean, we don't need the um, unabridged, <laughs> you know, version. I was it. just, we don't need was, the tone version now. Right. I was just thinking right. in terms of what, what are some of like the top and more significant, uh, I guess, categories that you needed to address right. in terms of standards. 
Okay, so um, yeah, because it's a 47 page monstrosity. <laughs> and talk about long dark holes if you don't, you don't want to start down that one, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. So I mentioned that in Virginia, we have some Virginia specific standards, there are about a couple dozen of them. And uh, we just passed a new one and uh, we passed it three weeks ago. And I got to tell you, I've been advising so much on it. It feels like three years. Um, I can't believe it's only been three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it, it's a specific standard on COVID. So just by way of background, uh, I mentioned that there's federal OSHA and then there are, there's half the states have their own state OSHA program. And they can enact state specific um, guide uh, standards if they want to. Now, generally what's happened under OSHA and even the other state plans is that they've said, well, if you follow the CDC guidance, you're good. And so you have, the, you have the standards like these and you have several of them, okay? General industry, right. construction, maritime, maritime, you name it. There are, there are a whole bunch of standards. These standards are, many of them are like 40 years old. Oh. COVID was not even an idea. Mm -hmm. it, we thought it was the common cold. And so stuff like coronavirus is not in here and it would take, way too long to get it in there to have a standard. But there is what's called a general duty clause. And so it's a catch-all. Mm -hmm. if, if, where something doesn't fit, you just say, well, look, okay. And it's in, the, it's in the OSHA Act. It says that employers are required to provide employment and a place of employment that is free of recognized hazards to their employees. That's what it says. And so uh, if you have something that they, the the standard, you know, people who drafted the standard never dreamed of 40 years ago. Under certain, certain circumstances, you can use the general duty clause. Now, I'm one of, and I, I have my biases, and I'll just address them up front. But one of them, and others who can disagree, I think, frankly, that the general duty clause can and does apply legally to COVID. And I think that we have some industry standards being put into place by CDC guidance by OSHA and that are being embraced by uh, industry players and associations such that we're creating standards and dealing with COVID that, and right. you could actually, I think OSHA could successfully cite uh, a company for failing to follow CDC guidance. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, that said, um, our board passed a standard specifically on COVID in Virginia um, by Way of disclosure, um, I, I wasn't a fan of the standard. I, I was a minority voice on the board. Um, and, um, but it does, there's a 47 page standard that replaces any general duty obligations and says, this is the standard for COVID. Mm -hmm. And so um, it has a number of provisions and um, it requires employers to put together infectious disease preparedness and uh, response plans. It has certain um, training requirements. Um, there are re required hazard assessments for employees. And then there are other additional protections. Um, there are, um, it, 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 there's a requirement to report all COVID cases to the State Department of Health. Um, wow. There's what I call the hotspot rule, which is requiring employers to uh, report to uh, Virginia Occupational Safety and Health if they have three or more cases in a 14-day window. Um, it has, uh, it, and even in the anti-retaliation provisions in Virginia, there are additional um, re requirements under this standard. So employees now are able not only to blow the whistle to OSHA or state agencies or to report to their, their concerns to the employer or discussing with co-workers, they can also go to the news media or to social media um, with complaints. And so um, I'm holding a lot of employers' hands. Mm -hmm. Again, back to the ohms, the woosas, it's going to be okay. Um, we unfortunately have some situations where employees um, either unintentionally or intentionally report things or things are reported in the press that are accurate or not. And it can put an employer in a very difficult position if inaccurate information about them is being put out there. 
So, and there, there are a lot of other provisions, um, but uh, I'm really trying to focus Virginia employers on complying with the standard, standard, but not getting so lost in the weeds of this that they're forgetting the human being, Amen. like I said before. Mm -hmm. And and who usually um, is involved in putting this standard together? Is it is, is it a coalition of um, you know government plus uh, private and public employers, or uh, does it just come from one place, one committee? Yeah, the initial idea, which was not pushed, was a coalition of several uh, interest groups employees in poultry, meat processing, and seafood industries. Then um, they brought to the request an emergency standard just to deal with that. And then the agency uh, consulted with our administration, the administration, and got marching orders saying, let's not go that route. Let's do something with broader applications. So really, the agency put pen to paper and drafted the standard. And then I and others attached uh, a number of amendments to it. Um, if, if you really want to know how the sausage is made, at least from my standpoint, mm -hmm. um, I, I might be the only, I think I'm one of maybe four or five people in the state to do this, but I actually pulled out this 47 page reg at, at like, I don't know, 10 or 11 at night and just went to work on it. And I went till 2 a.m. and just drafting amendments by what I what I thought made sense policy-wise and for, for employers. Right. And so, honestly, that's how a lot of the amendments are in there is because there is a, a small handful of folks like me who jumped in there, suggested amendments to the agency, and some of them are in there and some of them got thrown in the trash heap. But that's, as far as I can tell, that's how it really happened. Mm -hmm. I really yeah. hope that others who go this route I know Oregon's pushing forward with one and other states are expecting to do the same. I, I really hope that if there are listeners on this, that they reach out to me, other members of the board and ask us where the brick walls are because there are, there are landmines all over the place in drafting a standard like this. And we don't hold all the wisdom, but I can tell you, and folks who disagree with me will agree at least on where a lot of the landmines are and how we can help to address a lot of the questions that and stress that comes from the new standard. You know, at, at the beginning of the um, pandemic um, in this country, there was a lot of um, concern about personal protective equipment and whether who needed the personal protective equipment and what it should be. Does OSHA um, provide guidance with respect to who needs what kind of equipment in the workplace? Yes, and so, personal. In fact, there's a whole section on personal. There, their personal protective equipment is addressed throughout the standards, and there, there are standards specific to that, and also standard on respirators. And so, um, yes, there are specific standards for that. Now, in the coronavirus context, none of that is in there really. I mean, there you could argue that some of the standards kind of apply but not, not so much, not really. And so um, really, if anything, maybe some of the sanitation and other standards would apply better. But yes, there are personal protective equipment standards, um, but in this context for COVID, um, you know, we had to put in our Virginia standard, look, you have to look at what personal protective equipment is necessary to guard your employees that are not in this standard. We had to ex explicitly say that because it was never dreamed of when they came up with these. I, I will tell you though, that there's a big misunderstanding among a lot of folks. Um, so the masks, the, 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 the face coverings, I've got mine here. You mm -hmm. have yours with you? I got my mask, don't leave, oh, yeah. don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without it. Well, I even have my hand sanitizer. I'm a safety geek. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. So people think that these masks are personal protective equipment, and they're not. Um, personal protective equipment, this, the, and in fact, it's intended to protect you personally, right? By wearing this, at least the published science will not say that this will protect me from inhaling from others. But there's a lot of unpublished science that's really been embraced by CDC saying, yeah, but it, it looks like in groups that it is preventing the spread out to others. 
and that's a good thing. And so if everybody wears their face mask, this is yeah. my public service announcement, people. And you know, <laughs> my my firm has these stylish polka dotted ones that they gave me, <laughs> you know. But this is my PSA, people. Wear them and social distance and wash your hands and get the hand sanitizer going. Everybody, let's do this. Everybody. Please. Yep. So we can get back to normal. I want to go see a movie somewhere other than my, than my couch. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and we'll, pa we'll package that PSA and send it out to all the universities that are kind of trying to return begging. their kids to school. <laughs> I'm begging, please. Let's get back to normal. Um, yeah. But to get to your PPE question, so the, all of this stuff is not PPE. It's really, um, oh, bandana, no. I've heard that's not as effective. Decaders, uh, no. Um, but the PPE is really the, uh, the equipment that actually protects you in terms of what you inhale. So the, you may have heard of the N95 respirators yep. yes. and the mm -hmm. other equivalent re respirators. Those are personal, personal protective equipment because they protect you from what you breathe in. There is unpublished science that this does. I, I had one um, I, 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 and, um, uh, a health professional. Uh, she's an engineer and um, much bigger brain than mine. And she was telling me she thinks this is the poor man's vaccine, that it's not published. Uh, and there's, you know, we don't have the science uh, published on it, but that it does seem to have protective, equi protective qualities, even for the wearer. And so I'm wearing this. Um, and in hopes that, you know, uh, that I'll be okay. So, so yeah, but the PPE, yes, and we do have, so there are requirements, especially for the respirators. And, and by the way, um, I will tell you, um, if someone has an N95, I know they can be in short supply, but if someone has uh, protective equipment, they want to wear it, let them. Don't, don't, you know, some employers are telling them, don't wear it, you're gonna scare everybody. No, 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 look, okay. We, 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 we've all got to embrace protection yeah. here. And mm -hmm. so, um, oh, one other thing for my um, PSA, um, the uh, face shield yeah. is not so good. It's what? Not so good. It's meant to protect the eyes. It's not meant to stop uh, airborne. What's going on down here? Okay. Yeah, so um, apparently the face shields are, and I think younger folks like the face shields, mm -hmm. um, but they're not as claw face coverings, surgical masks. That's that's what it's about. Hand sanitizer, yeah. hand washing. So I'm, I'm, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no more of that. I think you know we're at the point in this country where we need more, not less. Um, yes. So one of the we do know, Courtney, um, is that uh, experts like yourself who spend time advising governments, advising employers, um, are on the front line to a lot of really, really interesting stories. And so we'd like for you to share with us uh, some of the more interesting OSHA or pandemic related uh, stories that you, that, that of issues that you've had to deal with. Pandemic, oh, yeah, um, you know, and uh, I'm kind of self-taught. Um, so um, one thing I had to do when I was labor commissioner, uh, I didn't have a background in this stuff. And so um, one thing I did was I just uh, put on the OSHA shirt and the cap and I'd walk a half step behind the inspector and I'd go like a police ride around, but uh, an OSHA ride around, I guess. And I'd follow, and if you, I noticed if you just follow a half step behind the inspector and keep your head down and don't say anything, they assume you're an apprentice, which oh. is more or less true. Mm -hmm. uh, I really kind of was, but um, um, I, I think if they knew the labor commissioner was on their work site, they would have hit the panic button. But they didn't know any better, and it was a great way to kind of learn from the ground up. It was my personal on-the-job training. So, um, yeah, I, I'll tell you, though, that, um, you know, I, I, there, there's an employer that had quite a few COVID cases at their workplace, and... Um, you know, they really were trying to do the right thing and handle it the right way. And um, thankfully, everybody lived through that experience. 
and you know they're kind of getting ready to get geared up again and um you know they're um and, and that's good they're 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 pulling together and uh you know i think they're going to be in a much better place so and, and i got to just like other lawyers and barbara i know you know this sometimes i don't feel just like a lawyer sometimes i feel like a psychologist or a priest absolutely and yeah. you know i i you know especially when i deal with a fatality I had a guy and he feels responsible for his personal friend's death and it wow. was his website. And, um, you know, I, I, I studied a little psychology, but, and I, but I'm not, I don't know enough to diagnose PTSD, but I really did think maybe this was one of those cases. And, you know, when you have a client asking you, am I responsible for this person's death? Um, it's, it's tough because, you know, you want to help, if you ever studied psychology, cognitive dissonance is the term, or, you know, seeing yourself in the light that you choose to see yourself in rather than objective mm -hmm. manner that you kind of attribute qualities to yourself uh, according to the self-image you want to create. And so, um, but, you know, you get in those situations and um, I, I will tell you, it can be extremely rewarding if you can help a person get to a better place. Mm -hmm. And when I was on the enforcement side, you're just citing and punishing. And, you know, I would try to reach out to lawyers and work out cases in ways that made sense. But um, you didn't, you never got behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, it may, you know, you didn't get to see, um, you know, you, you know, like from, from the Wizard of Oz or from the Wiz, you know, you didn't see right. Richard Pryor. You saw the Wiz <laughs> with all the you know, yeah. fire, but you never saw what's going on behind the scenes. But as a, as an attorney to be able to help employers deal with those really difficult personal situations. Um, and, and they, you know, it's not just a line. They really do feel um, for the folks that they hire um, and they want to try to do the right thing. So those are great rewarding experiences. If I could, I, I will tell you that um, a lawyer's tip um, I, so <laughs> you'll laugh. I, um, I, I had this goofy title. I kind of gave myself the OSHA whisperer, you know, you speak, <laughs> learning to speak the language of regulators right. gets you a better result. Mm -hmm. But I think it, I, honestly, I, God's honest truth. I think it's true. Um, there are many of us, we came through law school and, um, you know, we learned to deal with OSHA, like we learned to deal with opposing counsel and, you know, you just drop into this position and you start throwing right. jabs. And that's, I think that's really the opposite of what you should do with regulators. And so employers and their attorneys make mistakes all the time in their approach. Mm -hmm. Now, I was a business lawyer and then I went over to the agency and then I came back to prove mm -hmm. it. But, um, you know, as a business lawyer, you know, we speak the language. Okay, what's it gonna take? What, in other words, what check do I have to cut? You know, what, what are the settlement terms? What's the, the, the value of the case? We talk the language all the time. If you say that to an OSHA inspector, if you say that to a labor commissioner, you may have insulted that person because you basically said, what check do I, what figure do I have to put on this check to make you go away? Mm -hmm. Wrong answer. Right. Um, what, and, and especially, and I'm a business guy. I, I'm a business side guy, okay? That's my bias. And if I'm in that enforcement position, I'm trying to help you. I don't, I never cared one bit about getting a dime in penalties. I never cared about the penalty level. What I cared about was the human part, which is, are you taking the steps you need to fix the hazard? Mm -hmm. If there's a railing that needs to go on the side of the stairwell, okay, whatever, however you messed up, okay, we'll deal with that. If I come back and I don't see a railing on that stairwell, my sense of humor goes quick. I am livid because someone can fall and break their neck and that's not funny. And so right. if you, so really, if, if you fix the hazards, you're proactive, you act in good faith and you're being cooperative with the agency, you can get much better results. Well, if you drop into this position, start throwing jabs at me when I'm trying to settle this matter and fix the hazard, that just gets a matter. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I had lawyers 
who failed to return a phone call. Uh, and I, you know, look, I, I'm not trying to bring personal ego into this, but you know, if you get a call from your labor commissioner about a case you're involved in, I would think you'd return the call. Yep. Maybe not that day if you're busy, but sometime in the near future. And we get that or we get people just throwing punches or whatever. And I'm thinking, gee whiz guy, we're, I just want to help you keep, keep you from killing people. That's what we're really trying to do here. So let's keep our eye on the ball. And as lawyers, um, especially in this practice area, um, I really encourage people to learn the interests, the underlying interests of the regulators and be cognizant of your client's reputation be jealous, jealous guardians of it. Be well aware of your personal reputation as a lawyer mm-hmm. if, and, and the consultants and the experts you use. Because if you don't have credibility, I will tell you, I've been in those conversations. I know what those conversations are. And they don't necessarily follow the letter of the standards. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is about your past, your demeanor, your cooperativeness, your approach to safety. And if you don't have the right attitude, and if you're not speaking their language, you're going to get a worse result for your client. So um, I know I'm preaching, but um, <laughs> this is some of the messaging I really would like other practitioners to know. But you know, I, th- I think you're, you're giving really good guidance, um, Courtney, and um, a lot of employers now are struggling with returning employees to the workplace and what to do and how to, what the right approaches are. So does OSHA provide guidance to employers on considerations in returning employees to the workplace? And what are those considerations? It does provide guidance. And so um, I, I will say in candor that the agency has not been as on top in terms of providing the timely and helpful guidance that employers need at the time they need it. Um, And that probably is a resourcing issue. And um, I think at least from a federal standpoint, when you don't have um, an appointed person in that position to head up the agency, and I won't get into the politics, but I'll just say that if you don't have the requisite leadership, and I'm not commenting on those who stepped up and they did step up to provide that leadership. But there's really something about having those positions filled with folks um, who give a clear direction of the agency um, with authority. And so mm-hmm. unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, there was a nominee who didn't, um, who was who withdrew uh, before finalized and the agency's kind of been without someone in that role. But others have stepped in and done a great job with what they had. But I think for that reason, and for also for reasons of resourcing, um, the agency has not been in a position to provide, be quite as responsive as it could have been. But with that said, it does provide some industry-based guidance and also some practice-based guidance. Um, and so to a large extent, the guidance that would come out would, um, really just kind of uh, encapsulate what the industry is doing already. And so I think some of the, uh, some of the more thorough and timely guidance has come from associations, from trade associations, business associations, and, um, and they're, all eyes are on CDC. Everybody's keeping their eyes on CDC. And I, I think they should. So it, it's out there, but ultimately, you know, I tell employers, look, you know, the tail's not wagging the dog here. You can't let your employees dictate what is going, how you're going to run your workplace. You have to decide, right. you know, and it's, it's a big responsibility. It's not a power thing. It's a responsibility thing. And employers really do have to, yes, they can take a look at what OSHA's put out. They can look at CDC, their associations. But ultimately, they have to have humility and the wisdom and the ability to listen to employees and engage them, and then take an honest look at their workplaces and address, in, with employee engagement, address the hazards at their workplaces. And, um, and I tell people, look, <laughs> this is not really, this is, if you thought this was about risk avoidance, it really isn't now. 
It's about risk management. Yeah. It's a pandemic. Pan meaning this thing is affecting all of us. And unless you're living in a bubble, you're affected and you live in fear of this thing. Everybody has to embrace that. Yeah. So in the context of that fear, how do we manage that fear? How do we manage the risk? And how do we keep life going despite it? And so the guidance is there, but really ultimately the employers themselves have to kind of take an honest look at their work environments and their work conditions and then to really address it in a genuine fashion. Yeah. Had, had you seen um, yet any um, claims against employers where an employee has claimed that the, the employer has not met their standard of care in the workplace and, be, and because of that, uh, the person trans, you know, caught COVID-19 um, have you seen those sorts of complaints come through yet? Uh, I, I am from an outsider view. I mean, I stick with OSHA, which is all regulatory, so it's not the okay. personal liability stuff. Mm -hmm. But I will mm -hmm. say that this bleeds into a lot of that. And so it's percolating. And so in some states, in the workers' comp commissions and the courts are just starting to deal with it. We don't have clear law. But um, you do have... Uh, uh, employees who are bringing work comp actions. And so I don't have the exact terminology. You probably need to get a work comp lawyer in here mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to t discuss, but the analysis is a little different in the, uh, than OSHA because OSHA is about um, hazards and workers comp is about, as I understand, injury and illness. Injury. Mm -hmm. And you can have an injury illness without a hazardous hazard. situation created by, and you can, and vice versa. So the analysis is different, but um, but I understand that the workers' comp commissions and the courts are dealing with whether these can be deemed to be work-related if, if it was a, due to communal spread versus work-based exposures and, um, uh, you know, what, what, what are, is there a rebuttable presumption of getting it from work as opposed to getting it from elsewhere? Um, OSHA, it, it, so OSHA standards are not really intended for civil liability purposes. Mm -hmm. In fact, and I know at least in my state, there's a prohibition against using it for that purpose. But you know what? The plaintiff's bar is out there and a lot of this stuff is public record and mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's going to be used. So uh, it, it's out there and it has a lot of folks worried. There are bills being proposed in states and also in Congress to cap or limit uh, liability on employers Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not aware. I, well, there are some states that have passed it, but um, most not. Um, so that's an issue that it, it's really in its infancy. It's going to be inter interesting to see how that plays out. You know, you mentioned that OSHA is not really designed for um, civil enforcement. Tell us about the um, enforcement mechanism under OSHA and how OSHA does go about enforcing violations. So if you knew the truth, you wouldn't be quite as scared. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> okay, that's a disclaimer. <laughs> no, it's true. When I left the agency and I announced it to the staff, my deputy commissioner looked a little glum because you're going to go practice on the other side, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, you should want me there. You've got someone to talk to your bud. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, why were you, why, why are you, why don't you like this? He goes, well, we're going to lose our mystique. And I said, you guys aren't that mysterious. He goes, well, you know that, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, they, um, it, it, most of the citations are for what's called serious, which means it, 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 you know, if the worst happens, it would have a tendency to cause serious injury or death. Um, but, um, and that's as opposed to non-serious, but non-serious is usually something around paperwork or something that doesn't really affect workplace safety. So usually you're in the, what's called a serious penalty and per item, uh, it actually increases by inflation. It used to be up to $7,000 per item max. And now we're up to just north of 13000 And that will continue to steadily increase. Um, it's where, and um, 
you know, you, you, honestly, you could have a case where, you know, it was horrible and, you know, fatality case, but, you know, people think, well, gee whiz, why just a $13,000 penalty or why something just in double digits and not at least in, in you know, or uh, something in five digits instead of six, at least, or seven, which is what you usually see in yeah. civil liability context. And that's just because of the way that it's set up. And so it does get much more serious if you have repeat offenses or if it's a willful violation, then you could be talking about penalties that are tenfold and usually are tenfold that. So then you're talking six figure and some of the really big ones that you see get headlines. That's mm -hmm. where you have quite a few and especially, and, and so I, I, the true cost of an OSHA citation for most employers is not the monetary penalty. Most of us can pay a few thousand dollars and get and move on to the next day. The true cost is uh, ensuring that you don't have a repeat offense. And so, mm -hmm. and there's a look back period of, you know, several years. And if you have a, and if you have a citation that became a final order and it, you have a repeat either of that section of the, of that standard or of um, very similar facts, then the agency could hit you with a repeat and then you're, you're talking about tenfold in terms of penalties. But even then, the really big cost for a lot of employers, let's say you do construction work and you do work, work for a department of transportation or you get contract work out or you work for a large energy company that bids work out. Well, then they look at um, you know, how many serious citations you're getting, if you're getting willfuls, and then they take that into account in terms of whether you get the work or not. And then you're talking millions. Mm -hmm. And that, the real cost of an OSHA citation often is either lost business opportunity or the cost of us lawyers, yeah. because we are our expensive creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk yeah. with us about um, retaliation. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, um, except briefly at the beginning, um, and what protections there are under OSHA for um, employees who report unsafe working conditions, report, especially in connection with COVID-19. Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, if you hear 11C, that, that's retaliation uh, protection under the uh, OSHA Act. And also, it, it, one thing you may not, very few people know this, OSHA enforces anti-retaliation protections, not only for work safety, but for about two dozen other federal statutes. Oh. And so I actually had one for bank fraud and it was in an OSHA office and someone gave it to me because, you know, when they, when they see OSHA, they just send it over to me and I'm in the middle of some bank fraud thing. I'm like, oh, whoa, hey, I don't know this act. Um, <laughs> so OSHA, and, and that's only because OSHA is the agency with the horses. They have the folks in the field, they have the field offices, and they have the capacity, oh, and they do a yeah. lot of anti-retaliation stuff anyway, so here you go, take care of this, and that's really kind of how that happened. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, they, you, when I emphasize employee engagement a lot as partly because it's good business practice and partly to protect employers because the ones that don't engage and listen, the employees are going to complain somewhere. They don't feel like they can go to the supervisor or to the manager, they're going to go somewhere. And if it's not Facebook, if it's not um, a newspaper or to you know whatever news channel on your side, then they're, they'll go to the agency. And so, and they absolutely can. And, and there's absolute protection to go and blow the whistle and report to agencies. And so, and employers, you know, you, and also you have to be extremely careful if you get cited and it was based on a complaint. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like basketball. Um, the ref doesn't call the first foul, they call the second foul, the one that they see. So even if the employee was wrong and it's unjustified, this and that and the other, if you give the appearance of retaliating against that person who you think was the complainer, then you just doubled your problem by getting hit with a retaliation claim on top of the citation. Big problem. 
So I'm not saying that you can't go to your employees and engage even after workplace incidents or even after someone drops a dime with OSHA. I'm not saying that. I am saying that you should be extremely careful about assumptions as to who the complainer is. And even if you're sure of it, uh, you have to be extremely careful about not giving any whiff of mm -hmm. retaliation against that employee because then you get hit with a second one. And um, the retaliation claim may not be justified in the slightest. You may not have taken any uh, action against the employee, mm -hmm. but do you really want to have to defend it? Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, taking a breath, I always like to get, when it comes to citations and especially in retaliation actions, um, sometimes I, I'm the one to interact with the agency, but sometimes I'll, I'll point where I call my, 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 uh, my Denzel of the operation, the smooth talker, and I say, hey, Kate, you go talk to the agency. I just want one point of contact, someone who can keep a level head, keep in, your eyes in the bigger picture, and stay cool. Um, and so, and this kind of goes to how you interact with the agency, um, because I've had, I've had employers oftentimes want to overshare their opinions about OSHA and government and privacy and all these other political right. issues or whatever. This is not about that. This is about trying to get past this citation, get back to doing business. Right. And so, um, you know, when you get hit with these claims and especially in retaliation context, you don't want to give the inspector the opinion that this uh, claim was justified because of the way you act toward them. So, right. and when you get them, look, you know, just get the right person to speak for you, be it your attorney or the right person internal to the organization. And then, you know, usually what you can do is you just let them interview people. Maybe you put together a position sta statement, much like you might do with EEOC or other um, agencies mm -hmm. and you explain, you let them know the full picture. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, you kind of Jedi mind tricks, you know, you, these aren't the droids art, move along. You, you want them to get less interested in your case and then move along to a to much more interesting employer. Case. Right. That's the goal. We yeah. want them to move along to someone more interesting. And, yeah. and so how you address these situations and who you have doing that is very, very important. Right, right. So what would you say are, you know, the top, three or four uh, priorities that a, an employer really needs to pay attention to, to stay abreast of OSHA regulations, either the ones that were already in place or, or the ones that are evolving because we are uh, in a pandemic. Um, you know, as we look at not only our essential workers, the ones that, that have had to show up to the workplace and continue to show up, but also with respect to, um, you know, any return to work uh, plans that an employer might be putting in place? I think definitely work refusals. Having a game plan before someone refuses to work is important mm -hmm. because um, the work refusal uh, requirements are narrower than what most employees think they are. It's not if you feel unsafe. Again, this is a pandemic. No one is unsafe. Or no one, no one can be completely safe. We all feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, but um, if you are, um, you know, just trying to address that with your employees, then and and uh, if they and engage them. Now, if they feel unsafe, they can't just refuse to work. Um, mm -hmm. It has to be a reasonable refusal, um, objectively reasonable to an objective observer. Someone else would say, oh yeah, that's unsafe. They shouldn't be working on top of each other like that. It also has to be made in good faith. Mm -hmm. You can't have a whole bunch of people saying, well, we're going to refuse. I hear we get two weeks paid leave on the new federal law. Let's all go get paid and leave. No, it doesn't work. Um, and they also have to use the usual avenues of, uh, of raising the concern with the employer, with OSHA, with somebody. And only if that doesn't work or they don't have enough time or you know, uh, there's no reasonable solution that can be worked out, then they do have, uh, they can refuse to work without fear of retaliation. But, the, the, but that's much narrower of a situation than probably most employees believe. So anti-retaliation 
especially in work refusals is really huge. And thinking through ahead of time, how am I going to deal with employees who refuse to work? And at what point am I going to draw the line? Um, and some people may legitimately feel like, look, I can't do this, I'm too scared. And how are you going to react to that? Now, yes, you can play some hardball or, or at least you know, some tough love and say, well, look, you know, we've done all the right things, we're following the guidance, this is how we're gonna do it, and this may or may not be the place for you to work. And maybe you take that approach, and that is legitimate. Then again, um, maybe you have uh, another approach in which you think ahead, okay, am I gonna offer paid leave? And to what extent can I provide paid leave? And can I budget for that? And what if, uh, when other people hear about this, how will I deal with that? I, I had a boss that had a sign out front that said, uh, what I do for you, I must do for all. Mm. It's not about friendship. It's all about, look, being fair. And so addressing that, um, in terms of paid leave or how flexible you are with your leave is important. But the number one thing I would say, and this comes from experience from inside the agency, it's not just about the standards here, okay? We can follow these, okay? But it's you can have the best policies in the world and put them in a notebook and tab them and it's beautiful, it's sitting there on your shelf and there you go you have to enforce it religiously yeah. and you have to document it. And so, you know, if you, uh, how, like Jerry McGuire would say, help me help you document it, um, what you're doing and, and follow it religiously and that you're disciplining. Have, not only should you have your graduated system of discipline, discipline as we do in EEOC or other contexts, mm -hmm. but follow religiously <laughs> and document your use of it. Um, because you can have the best policies, but the most, I think the most common complaints going into OSHA, and they're coming in by the thousands, is that their employers aren't enforcing the rule. They have a great social distancing policy. They have all the signs, they give everybody the mask, the whole nine, but nobody's doing it. And that's when they drop a dime with OSHA. And you have to show and document, document that you are religiously enforcing this. If you see two people walking talking in the hallway chatting a little too close, you don't have to slap them with a write-up. But um, if it's something that's common and you're, so the actions and emissions of your managers and supervisors are imputed to the employer, like in any other employment law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have to be your eyes, ears, they have to be your enforcers mm -hmm. and they have to be unpopular and discipline people and document it and stick it in the file. And right. I think, honestly, they may not be your drinking bud, but they sure will start to respect your rule. And you'll get more respect from the agency and um, you'll be able to make your case a whole lot better if, that ice, if, if OSHA comes knocking. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. You know, and it also requires employees to leave their uh, political opinions and views on face masks or anything else at the door and really focus on what do we need to do? What's my responsibility in this workplace, particularly if you're a leader? Yeah. Yes. Tell them this is, this is a democracy and I'm the dictator. <laughs> I like that. I like that. You got to um, be the boss. I think we're coming up to um, close to the end of our time together today, Courtney. Um, but any parting words of wisdom for our audience as they um, think about this agency that they may not have thought about very much before COVID-19? So be proactive. If you don't have someone from, if you, especially if you're in a high hazard workplace, be it COVID or other hazards, if you don't have a relationship with someone you can call in the agency, develop it now. Personnel is policy. Who is in place has a whole lot to do with how the policy is implemented. Because these standards, I mean, there are vague terms, there are points of argument, and people bring their worldviews into this, including regulators. And so um, knowing, having that kind of, it does a couple things if you develop that kind of relationship. One, they get to know you and who you are, and the conversation that happens inside the room with these agencies 
is not always necessarily exactly contained in the F of the field operations manual or the standards. A lot of it has to do with what they know about you and what they don't. And so you want them to know you a little bit and know what you're doing so that you're not starting on zero with, with someone you never met. Um, and by the same token, you want to know them a little bit and you want to have, if you want a personal lifeline, you got to have some people in the agency that you can call. I email, text, and sometimes even hit on their cell phones, uh, uh, enforcement officials all the time to try to get the latest and greatest in what they're thinking and where they're going with something. They, now, I'm not saying they're right. I am not at all saying they're right. And sometimes we have to litigate these things because, uh, and sometimes the agency's wrong. It's not personal. It's just, you know, we just sometimes need a neutral arbiter to decide what the law actually is and what uh, the proper policy is. But along the way, you want your reputation to be one that you have to have credibility. They have to know that you tell the truth. They have to know that behind closed doors, they have to trust and know that you're doing what you say you're doing and you're trying to do things the right way. And if you make a mistake or if you have something wrong, you just own it and they're fine. Mm -hmm. And then they move on to some, uh, someone else who doesn't get it. it, it so uh, developing that relationship now is really important. And a lot of and lawyers tell their clients, and it drives me nuts, they tell their clients, don't call OSHA. They're going to come after you. You know, um, they want to hear from you. And no, they're not going to send an inspector out your way because you called and asked a question about an issue that was fuzzy to you. If anything, you're showing that you are interested in the issue and that you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Now, you may get an answer you don't want. <laughs> you may even get an answer uh, from someone and they may not always be the right answer. That is true. And I guess that's what lawyers are for. But, um, but, you know, at least developing a relation, if it's a local inspector, a regional director, or an area director, or someone, and, and you know, even if, you don't even have to do it solo, you can do it as an association. They love free food like anyone else. Invite them to your meetings for your associations. Have them be a speaker. Some of them love that. And, and invite them and, and, and ask them the questions and get, get to know them, exchange cards and follow up and get them on the automatic dial. Um, they, if a, a lot of them are, most of them are true believers and they, and if you reach out and you let them know you're interested in what they do and in best practices and you consult with them, they, and they, they eat that up. So yeah, develop the relate. It, 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 you can know the standards, you can know the law. You have to know the person on the other side. That's what you have to know. You have to have the relationships so that you can get better results, not as a favor, but just because you have a shared relationship and a shared understanding. Well, thank you very much for being with us today and um, providing insight, like I said, into this agency that a lot of people don't think about very much, but I'm sure glad that you're out there doing it and helping employers um, deal with um, OSHA issues. Thank yeah, I, I definitely appreciate what you shared today, Courtney, because you gave us a great uh, mix of, you know, the technical and the practical, which is what our employers um, need today. And so it's been very helpful. Thank sure, you. Sure, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And Thanks uh, so I, much. All right, good spending the time with you. Take great. care. Thank you. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.